Federal Judicial Center. I'm Beth Wiggins, Director of the Center's Research Division, and this is Term Talk. In each 8-12 to 12 minute episode, we discuss what is helpful for the lower courts to know about the term's most impactful Supreme Court decisions. Joining me are our longtime collaborators, Lori Levinson, Professor of Law and David W. Burcham, Chair in Ethical Advocacy at Loyola Law School, and also Evan Lee, Professor Emeritus at UC Hastings School of Law. Thank you both for joining us today. Two criminal cases this term relate to the discretion of the lower courts in trying cases. Let's now talk about Hempel versus New York, decided eight to one with Justice Thomas dissenting. This case considers the right of defendants to confront witnesses and its intersection with state evidentiary rules. Evan, can you tell us more? Yeah, the facts of this case are kind of complicated, but uh, briefly, the defendant in this case, uh, Daryl Hemphill, was charged for the 2006 murder of a two-year-old child who uh, was killed by a stray nine-millimeter bullet. Um, and he was charged years after the incident, only after uh, DNA evidence linked him to the killing. The guy who was originally charged with the murder was uh, named Nicholas Morris, but eventually he only pled guilty to illegal possession of a weapon. And the weapon was not a nine millimeter, but a 357 revolver. However, later, a nine millimeter cartridge along with some 357 rounds were found on Morris's nightstand and that becomes important later. So Hemphill pointed to Morris as the true killer and a prosecution witness verified that in fact uh, that nine millimeter cartridge was indeed found at um, Morris's apartment on his nightstand. Now Morris was unavailable uh, to testify at trial. So the state introduced his plea allocution um, to show that he only admitted to having a 357 revolver, not a nine millimeter gun, uh, which would tend to refute that he was the killer of this child who died by a nine millimeter bullet. The state argued that under state precedent, Hemphill had quote unquote, opened the door to this plea allocution in order to correct a misimpression created by Hemphill's argument. Uh, the state also cited Morris's plea allocution in their closing argument. The New York Supreme Court and New York Court of Appeals affirmed Hemphill's conviction. So what question was the Supreme Court considering? Uh, the state made a number of arguments, but the main question was, can a defendant, quote unquote, open the door to testimonial evidence that would otherwise be barred by the confrontation clause? Laurie, how did the court answer or analyze the question? The court made sure that the focus really was on the constitutional right of confrontation and that this wasn't just a mere evidentiary issue or a procedural issue. In fact, the court rejected the state's first argument that somehow the defendant hadn't raised this issue below. And in fact, the defendant had. Every time he raised it, he said that there had been a violation of his Sixth Amendment right. The court then cited directly to Crawford v. Washington and rejected what the state was offering, which was the old reliability approach, that somehow that would create an exception to the right of confrontation. The court also rejected the defendant opened the door rule and said uh, the defense uh, had argued that there's a violation. The state had said, oh, that's just a procedural rule. 
The Supreme Court said it's more than a procedural rule. It goes to a constitutional right of confrontation. The court rejected the argument by the state that somehow due to the truth-finding function, they should allow in the rest of this uh, evidence. And finally, the court pointed out that lower court judges do have the ability to protect against abuses of the right by balancing the prejudicial impact versus the probative value of the evidence. So in the end, the Supreme Court said there is a right of confrontation. You can't just ask whether it's reliable. And here the evidence should not have been admitted under the open the door ruling. Yeah, if I could just jump in quickly, we have to remember that Crawford versus Washington overruled Roberts versus Ohio, which had said that an ex parte declaration against the defendant could come in so long as it bore, uh, quote unquote, sufficient indicia of reliability. But Crawford rejected reliability as a way to get around the confrontation clause. So the trial court in this case overstepped in judging the reliability of the evidence or in judging whether Hemphill's argument was in fact misleading to the jury. And furthermore, the court here held that the familiar rule of completeness was inapplicable to this case because Hemphill didn't offer any part of the plea allocution into evidence. So Evan, um, while I have you, um, what about the concurrence? Well, um, again, uh, the, the concurrence, Justices Alito and Kavanaugh um, expanded on this um, rule of completeness. They wrote separately to explain that it is possible for a defendant to impliedly waive, uh, or f maybe we could say forfeit, his or her confrontation clause rights. And in particular, if a defendant offers part of an ex-party declaration into evidence, he or she can't then turn around and object to the rest of that declaration being offered into evidence. That's called the rule of completeness. And Justices Alito and Kavanaugh stress that Crawford did not do away with the rule of completeness. It's just that the rule of completeness doesn't apply on the facts of this case because Hemphill did not offer any part of Morris's plea allocution into evidence. He merely cited evidence, independent evidence, that a nine millimeter cartridge was found on Morris's nightstand. Well, so Laurie, what should the lower courts take away from this opinion? I think the two big takeaways are, as Evan suggested, that this case is about a constitutional right, the right of confrontation. And Justice Scalia, who authored that opinion, is no longer on the court. But Crawford and the right of confrontation is still very much present, and the court is enforcing it. The second thing is that they sent this case back for a determination of whether the constitutional violation was harmless error. So we'll have to wait to see how that plays out, given the specific facts of this case. Thanks, Lori, and thanks, Evan. Um, look forward to seeing you again soon. This podcast was produced at U.S. taxpayer expense.